Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that I am looking for 50 people with Hashimoto's. If you have been diagnosed in the last 10 years and you feel lost or confused about exactly what to do, then I want to invite you to join me for a free training call on Thursday, May 16th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where I will show you how to support your thyroid for your thyroid type and your specific Hashimoto's triggers. You will also find out how to lower your thyroid antibodies and how to get to the bottom of all of your thyroid symptoms, the weight gain, the fatigue, the brain fog, the inflammation, the hair loss. Please go to inatoppler.com slash Zoom call to register, and I will send you all of the call details. I only have room for 50 people, so please be sure that you register at inatoppler.com slash Zoom call and get your spot right now. Meet Laura. She has Hashimoto's and thyroid issues. She weighs more than she would like, and she feels like she's aging extra fast. Her mom and grandma also had Hashimoto's, and so she felt resigned to being on thyroid medicine forever and just seeing more and more decline like her mom and her grandmother, who were actually told that their thyroids were completely dead, quote unquote, and that there's nothing that they can do. She felt her skin was dry. She was aging faster than her friends, no matter what cream she was using or trying. She followed a few popular biohacking experts and started to look at methylation. And after doing a genetic test, she saw that she had the MTHFR gene variant, among many others. After doing some quick research online, Laura decided to start taking high-dose methylated B vitamins as they're often touted for MTHFR. However, when she did that, she didn't actually notice any difference in how she felt. She started adding more and more vitamins to her vitamin regimen, But even with all of that, she still didn't feel any better or see any difference in her skin. And so that just made her even more frustrated. When I met Laura, I saw that while she was taking supplements, those supplements may not be right for her. And she was also missing many of the other areas that affect all of the things that she was dealing with. And so we needed to start there to solve her health mystery. Every year, Thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Laura's struggles and joining me on the show today to talk much more about this is Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. Dr. Kara is a leading voice in the intersection of nutrition, epigenetics, and aging. She's also the author of the recently published book, Younger You, as well as Better Broths for Healing. Dr. Kara, I am so excited to have you here. Welcome to Health Mystery Solved, Thyroid and Hashimoto's Revealed. It is so great to be with you. I'm really glad that our paths finally joined up so that we can talk. I know we've been trying to do this for a while. Yes, definitely. Thank you for being here. And when we think about our health, our thyroid, our immune system, and especially as it relates to autoimmunity, Genetics often come to mind, but as you so eloquently explain in your book, it's not your genetics that determine the level of health or immune system function 
or even your age, but it's rather your epigenetics. And it's something that people talk about, but I think there's so much confusion around it. So I would love it if you can explain this to us. Yeah. I, you know, in the early 2000s, scientists finally cracked our genetic code. You know, we mapped the human genome out. Turns out we've got about, you know, a little over 23,000 genes. And we thought that it would be the Rosetta Stone for all of the diseases that ail us. We would be able to find a very clear map from genes to disease. So you focus on thyroid diseases, all of those would have, you know, a very clear genetic pattern. It turns out that that's not true. You know, really in over 90% of the cases, it's just not true. There are some significant genetic conditions. You know, as I speak, a friend of mine is in Yale New Haven Hospital in Connecticut receiving a heart transplant because in his family, there's a severe genetic cardiomyopathy. He has the genes associated with it and, you know, his heart's not no longer working and he's getting a new one. And it's this extraordinary and it's an amazing feat of science that they're able to override that genetic fate. But for most of us, for most of the time, we're driving the car. It's not the genes that we've inherited. It's how they're being turned on and off. And this is the field of epigenetics. Um, And it really has moved into prominence after realizing that our genes aren't our destiny. So after the Human Genome Project was completed, there was an about face looking at epigenetics, looking at the factors that influence genes being on and off as the answer to the causes of chronic disease. So from what we eat, from the toxins we're exposed to, from our stress experience, from our connection, our community, how well we exercise, so many different variables influence our pattern of gene expression. And really simply put, we want our best genes on, those genes associated with health and longevity and feeling good and being happy, et cetera. You know, in those that are involved in pushing disease forward, we want those turned off. Yeah. And I think it's just so nice to know that that's what happens because for so many people, including Laura, she felt like, well, my mom had Hashimoto's, my grandma had Hashimoto's. It's just the way it's going to be and there's nothing I can do and it's just going to go this certain way. But that's not true. And I think it's just a very empowering thing. So you mentioned that there are many things that can help us to turn genes on or off um, in terms of our lifestyle and nutrition. So let's talk about some of those. What would you say are you know, some of the biggest things that we can do to help turn on the genes that help us with anti-aging and help us with detox and help us with preventing and disease versus turning them on? We're, we're starting to crack that nut. Um, this is a new field. My area of research has been, it, it started in looking at biological aging. So the rate at which we're aging is measured by these DNA methylation patterns, changes to gene expression. It can capture the rate at which we're aging. It's actually interesting that other, that science is is sort of taking that one step beyond and saying, it's not just a marker of aging, but it seems like aging itself is actually happening in these gene expression changes. And aging, just to tie it back to thyroid disease and really any other chronic disease, aging is the big driver for these conditions. I know hypothyroidism, graves, et cetera, can kick in relatively young, but the incidence increases really exponentially as we age. 
different kinds of thyroid, even th- subclinical hypothyroidism kicks in. So this, so the changes to the physical body and the aging journey seem to be starting in epigenetics and changes to epigenetic expression and best studied of these is DNA methylation. Um, and then it, it really sort of influences everything, you know, and just how well we're doing our health span and our lifespan. So what doesn't influence it? <laughs> and and I want to just mention, and we can circle back to this later, to talk a little bit about the heritability patterns. We, in fact, inherit some of this gene expression information from our our parents and our grandparents and even earlier generations potentially but even still even though we inherit it we still have we still sit in the driver's seat and have some say over this now actually let me just before i jump into the the things that influence i i want to say that our study um which was a first of its kind looking at biological aging as measured by dna methylation was a multimodal study so we looked at diet and lifestyle interventions so i can definitely talk to you about what we did and then i can talk to you about some of the other literature out there in our study we measured specifically you know bioage and and we showed that we were able to slow it down in our participants by over three years as compared to the control group that didn't have an intervention. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, it was, it even blew our minds, like the, the, the impact of our intervention. And, and again, I'll just draw the line back to the chronic diseases of aging start, you know, with biological age, that's the biggest risk factor. And so if we can move it back even a little, we can extend health span. Um, we can reduce reliance on, you know, the medical establishment. There were there was a study published last year by David Sinclair out of Harvard and some of his colleagues out of, I believe, the University of London, um, looking at the economics of even a super modest tweak in health span. So they looked at, you know, improving health span by a year, you know, or slowing biological age down by a year. And they put a number on a cost savings on it of, of 38 trillion. And then if we could do it by 10 years, you know, that was an order of magnitude greater in savings, 380 trillion US dollars. And then just the co- the savings to humanity, to the to caregivers, to, you know, just completely draining our personal bank accounts and, you know, our our, our kids' inheritance and just draining our souls. Those of us who are caregivers. I mean, if we if we can just tweak it a little bit, we just we just we stand to gain uh, in just untold ways. And thyroid fits in there just to kind of swing it back over to your to your patient case. So, what we looked at specifically was um, a diet program. Uh, a, a dietary intervention that's just super, 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 super specifically designed to sweet talk gene expression. Um, it's dense in greens, and all of these foods, every the, every aspect of the design will be familiar to you and your listeners. It's super rich in veggies, lots of greens, lots of cruciferous. Um, and yes, for those struggling with thyroid disease, obviously you want to, you know, you want to cook them and. You know, you may need to lean heavier in, in, in certain vegetable categories that, um, you know, that you're less concerned about influencing uh, thyroid health, you know, the, 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 the ones that are less goitrogenic. Um, so vegetable dense, uh, low glycemic fruit dense, especially, especially dark berries. Uh, we all know those polyphenols are incredibly, incredibly important. Um, there's animal protein. In particular, eggs are very smart. 
gene whispering foods. Um, liver, if people are open to eating it, is basically a multivitamin mineral in a food matrix. It's incredibly impactful and healthful for us when we can get clean source liver. Plenty of people don't eat it and they're doing just fine though. Uh, so I don't want to say that it's a deal breaker if you're unwilling to try liver. Seeds, nuts, you know, good oils like um, extra virgin olive oil, you know, coconut oil, um, fatty fish, clean fatty fish, um, sufficient amounts of vitamin D, mushrooms are gene whispering foods. So especially um, shiitake, anaki, maitake. That's very interesting because a lot of people tend to stay away from mushrooms for various reasons, especially if they have candida or other gut issues. So that's really interesting to know that they could be really helpful. Oh, perfect. They're just such important. They're, 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 they're one of our dynamic dozen. You know, I, th I think mushrooms are incredibly impactful for DNA methylation. A whole host of herbs and spices are just dense with polyphenols, rosemary, thyme, um, oregano, rich with something called uh, rosmarinic acid, curcumin, and turmeric quercetin, you know, in a variety, in, in everything from capers to onions and resveratrol, etc. There's, there's a lot of really cool polyphenols that regulate gene expression and in particular DNA methylation. So the diet was really built brick by brick to house all of these nutrients that sweet talk DNA methylation. It's low glycemic. It's a little bit keto leaning. We could see that our participants were in a very mild ketosis. It has a modest intermittent fasting structure of just 12 hours on and 12 hours off. Um, so it's not, it's, it, we wanted it to be doable. You know, we needed to have our participants be able to adhere to it for, for eight weeks, and some of them cho chose to continue on it longer. Um, so we wanted it to be doable. We wanted people to have some kind of a good exercise habit. So the minimum exercise prescription was five days on uh, for 30 minutes minimum at a perceived exertion of 60 to 80% of your maximum. So Maybe you're breathing a little bit heavier, maybe a smidge of sweating when you're getting up towards 80%, but nothing crazy. And you could do whatever you want. So no boot camp type of stuff necessarily. Yeah. And you know what? To be honest, as we move into our next stage of studies, I think, uh, and what we're going to be looking at, we're looking at the Younger You program individualized, there is a place for some of us to do more aggressive, high intensity interval training. I mean, the research is pretty cool. Resistance training is important, et cetera. But really, bottom line, the first step is moving our bodies and doing something we like and engaging in a healthy habit. We wanted a program that's doable, you know, not something that's, well, it can be tweaked for the kind of elite biohacker, but we wanted it broadly doable. You know, if we're going to sort of change the trajectory of health in the world, which desperately needs it, it needs to be something that we all can do. Um, so we had a modest exercise prescription. We wanted people to sleep well. We wanted them to engage in a, in a simple uh, meditation practice. And we did just a basic breathing exercise and we wanted them to take a simple greens powder, so a little a little extra hit of those all important polyphenols, and a probiotic, and that was the and that was the program. And so we had a group do it for eight weeks, and then we had a control group who didn't, and we measured those DNA methylation um, changes in both groups. Well, that's amazing, Dr. Kara, that you saw three years of lessening in 
age, right? With the eight week program. And like you said, it's so doable. You know, we hear about, okay, we just have to eat cleaner, exercise more, sleep, you know, do a little bit of, you know, silence or meditation, right? And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this, like, it just seems like, like you said, it's doable. It's, you know, I don't want to say simple because obviously there's cooking, there's things involved, but it's simple as compared to some of the other plans out there that are just so complicated, you know? Yeah. We're a clinical practice. We see, you know, we actually work with humans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're not sci- we're not bench scientists working with animals and we're not, you know, and we're not setting the bar so high. Like we're working with real life people who are going to either be able to do it or not. And we, you know, we know how well people are going to be able to adhere. Like we've been doing this in, in real life for, for long enough that we, you know, that we have a reasonable sense of, of what the population will be able to adhere to. Eight weeks you know, was the max amount of time that I anticipated we could have decent adherence. And we also had our nutritionists meet with each participant weekly for the first month and then as needed after that. And really most of the participants chose to stay with a nutritionist throughout the program. They were just such a, they were so helpful. And I think that that's key. You know, you being a nutritionist, I bet that little bit of connection was Probably the difference between getting really high adherence scores um, and not. And people, you know, the other cool thing, actually, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of the fact that our participants didn't adhere perfectly and we still got these outcome. So I think that's another really cool thing. There were, there, you know, not everybody adhered to our program. There's no alcohol in the eight weeks. You can have alcohol after that, but we didn't want people to drink. And I know for, for sure, one 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 individual, you know, decided that he was going to continue with some very modest drinking. And I know there was another individual, I think, who's who fessed up to having some rice. And it was a, it's a grain free. The eight weeks is grain free intervention. But even with these these things, we still saw um, powerful outcome. So some of us can be, you know, just really get down on ourselves when we're not perfect. And I, I think it's just kind of heartening, kind of cool that, you know, even just d- despite the imperfections, we still did really well. And adherence in general was, was, was very high that, and I think that was our, our nutrition team. Yeah. And I think having that support is so helpful, but also I think just thinking about it from even an energetic perspective and thinking about the fact that, you know, the universe is not neutral, but really net positive. So if you start to do things that are better for you, the body kind of just gets into that healing mode. So you don't necessarily have to do 25 things, right? So even if this person didn't adhere to one or two of the things, just changing five of the factors is already really propelling you forward. That's a really great point. And I think, you know, as I introduce this program, people around the world have been interested because it was such a, you know, kind of seminal. It was the first of its kind study. So people wanted to know what we did specifically. And and for some, it is a heavy lift. You know, for somebody eating a very standard American diet, this is a change. And one of the cool things, to your point, is in the back of the book, there's a 30-page nutrient appendix. These are all ep- what, what we call epinutrients. They're nutrients known to favorably change gene expression. And any one of us can go into that appendix with a highlighter <laughs> and highlight things we're already eating. So if we need some motivation, if we need, you know, some 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 esteem building, go back there and see what you're already doing right. You know, see what you're already doing right and then look and see what you might consider adding. I mean, by the way, chocolate is in there, coffee is in there, you know, for some of us those are 
those are deal breakers if we can't have them. So both of those um, made their way into our appendix. They both have research on them as being, you know, favorable with their polyphenol profiles. Right. That's great. Now, one of the things that you talk about and you mentioned earlier as well is that what turns things on and off, right, has to do with DNA methylation. And I'd love to just dig into that a little bit more because I think methylation, as much as it's very widely talked about, especially in the functional medicine space, I think there's also a lot of misunderstanding about that. I know when I mention methylation, people usually say, oh, you mean the MTAFHR gene, right? And it's like, well, yes, that's part of it, but there's a lot more to it. So I'd love it if you can explain that a little bit more and you know, just give us an understanding of how it all relates. Sure. Yep, absolutely. And you're welcome to interrupt me if I go too far into a rabbit hole or you need to ask a clarifying question. Please do. Because it is it is a big topic. Um, and methylation does a lot. <laughs> I liken it sometimes. This is not an accurate analogy, but just to sort of illustrate its importance in the body, I liken it to breathing. You know, if you couldn't methylate, i.e. if you couldn't breathe, it wouldn't be long before you just simply wouldn't survive. So, you know, it's it's been said, you know, many times that methylation is really basically happening in virtually every cell of the body all of the time. Um, it's incredibly fundamental. When people think about the MTHFR gene or the other popular genes, when, when folks think, think about, you know, these variants and methylation, they're specifically referring to the methylation cycle. And this is where we make the methyl, these little methyl groups that then go work their magic all over the body. So, a methyl group is just a carbon with three hydrogens on it. Carbon and hydrogen, just ubiquitous in nature. You know, we're all built of the carbon and hydrogens. And when it's an, in the methyl structure, which is like the simplest structure, that methyl group can get placed on to different molecules in the body, and it can get taken off different molecules in, in the body. And there are hundreds of enzymes dedicated to putting a methyl group on or taking a methyl group off different structures in the body. And DNA methylation, my area of research, is just one of, you know, those these hundreds where methylation is used, a methyl group, this carbon and three hydrogens is used to either allow a gene to or to turn a gene off. So when there are a lot of these carbon and three hydrogens, think about it as um, in the scientific literature, it's denoted as a red lollipop. So if you can visualize a, a strand of DNA and it's a region of it's dotted with these red lollipops, that gene is inhibited from being turned on. Those red lollipops basically inhibit transcription from happening. It blocks, physically blocks transcription from happening. Conversely, those lollipops can be inhibited from being placed on the genes or they can be actively removed from the genes. They can pull those red lollipops off. And in so doing, that particular gene can then be turned on. So lots of red lollipops, the gene is turned off. There's, you know, it's inhibited. Less or no red lollipops, the gene can be expressed. Most fundamentally, we want our best genes on and our worst genes off. It's really kind of that simple. It's very complex, but it's really kind of that binary. I will say, um, and then I'll circle back to the methylation cycle, but I will say that there are many other epigenetic processes happening. DNA methylation just happens to be um, one of the best researched, but there are about a hundred other um, 
methylation marks as they're, or excuse me, epigenetic marks as they're referred to, sort of influencing what genes are on and off. But really, DNA methylation is one of the most important and best studied of all of them. So going back to MTHFR and the methylation cycle, that's where we make the red lollipops. It's like the red lollipop machine, uh, as it were. <laughs> and it's and it's really it, it takes a lot of nutrients. So this is where folate comes in. This is where B12 comes in. Choline, going back to you know eggs or liver or or, or mushrooms. This you know choline or betaine that we find in beets. Beets is a beets are a methylation superfood, um, and a host of different. Uh, B vitamins and minerals kind of help this methylation cycle to whir and in, in produce these red lollipops. As these red lollipops are produced, they are used all over the body in a variety of different reactions. So we metabolize estrogens, we metabolize different toxins, we make dopamine, the all-important brain neurotransmitter, we make adrenaline and noradrenaline, we metabolize melatonin, we make different phospholipids that help with our lipid membrane structure, acetylcholine, which helps with um, neuromuscular uh, transmissions and, and, and memory. So it's, I mean, it's really kind of extraordinary to me how important this uh, methylation molecule is. And I, and, you know, just in pondering it as I have done my literature and, and, you know, in writing the book, it, I think it's because it's so ubiquitous in nature and it's, you know, it's relatively easy to make. It's, you know, again, just a carbon and three hydrogens that our body just, was built to depend on using it a lot all over the place. And so when someone is thinking about methylation, because obviously, as you mentioned, how you're methylating is going to be one of the big factors that's going to influence epigenetics. Do you then recommend, in addition to all of the lifestyle and diet that you guys did, do you recommend that they get any specific tests for whether they may need more nutrients to help their uh, methylation? Yeah, absolutely. So anybody, we didn't, we didn't get additional tests in our in our research study. We 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 controlled our we limited our study to healthy individuals only, healthy middle aged individuals. We were trying to isolate looking at when aging is happening, um, but and we didn't want to look at. We didn't want it to be influenced by the presence of a of a of an illness of a disease. So we just you know we just recruited healthy individuals to because aging itself is associated with predictable and negative changes to DNA methylation. Aging is the biggest risk factor, as I said earlier, and there are these predictable changes. So we want we isolated our research to that. But in clinical practice, yeah, one hundred percent, we're casting a wide net to see what's going on. Really. <laughs> Most things influence methylation. I mean, how healthy your gut is. Our mic a good, robust microbiome basically makes a multivitamin, including active folates. Such a good point. Yeah, it makes B12. It makes biotin. I mean, a healthy microbiome. But it also it also makes compounds that are absorbed. So it acts on our polyphenols. It acts on our food alters those compounds. Those compounds are absor absorbed and they are um, epigenetically active. So our, our polyphenols are transformed and activated and change our gene expression. Our micro, you know, our microbiome, as you know, influences whether our immune system is balanced and tolerant or not. Um, it's just, it has such far-reaching effects on everything. And epigenetics and DNA methylation is, is no exception. So we're looking there. And then to your point, we're looking at the methylation cycle. 
We can look at, you know, how well the methylation cycle is happening. We can look at homocysteine. We can look at some of the intermediates in the cycle. We can actually measure it um, and see whether that, whether we can make red lollipops or not, basically. Are we making them? Are we making enough? Are we doing a good job? Do we need the nutrients associated? And then we look beyond that. So in a good functional medicine work, work up, um, and I'm sure you've talked about this before, we cast a wide net and really um, look in every metabolic nook and cranny. And part of our treatment is, of course, optimizing that. Um, and so we start with a diet and lifestyle foundation. Uh, we layer the Younger You program into you know, and with all the, all, there's, there's benefit for everybody. DNA methylation is so fundamental and so, so important. We'll make sure we swing back and talk about thyroid disease specifically. Um, so we want it to be dialed in for everyone, but then we want to really pull those individualized threads so that, you know, the human sitting in front of us is able to uh, achieve optimal wellness. Right. Gotcha. So then with some of the testing, as you said, you're looking at the gut, make sure the microbiome is balanced, liver, I'm assuming, just to make sure that we're draining properly and our detox pathways are working. Um, what about looking at actual genetics? Do you find that that's helpful? Or do you find that if you look at homocysteine and if you look at some of the other intermediaries in the methylation cycle, you can support that and don't necessarily need to know if someone has, you know, MTR, MTHFR, or any of the other methylation cycle genes? Yeah, super good question. Yeah, I would say in general, I don't lean too heavily on genetics these days, um, unless I hit a wall. I mean, I think MTHFR can be helpful to know. I think APO, APOB status, you know, and the associated risk with increased inflammation and, you know, de dementia and so forth. I think that can be really helpful to know. I th there's a handful of genes I think uh, looking at can be helpful, but I think these broad sweeps, you know, such as a, a 23andMe, um, can be useful, but they don't need to be a first-line inquiry. You know, they really don't because they can change. Uh, we can lean heavily on them. Uh, it's not necessarily the most fruitful direction to go in. So there's a time and a place for them, but they're not. it's not a starting query for me. I agree with you so much. I feel exactly the same way. And I think so many people rely on that, but then that kind of goes back to, oh, it's my genetics, right? And then it's like, oh, oh, I have this. And, you know, you don't even know if they're expressing, that's right? That's right? right. So, yeah. That's exactly right. Yes. In fact, I, there's a couple of cases in the story. I talk, I do talk a little bit about genetics and what my, these, you know, what the thoughts that I'm sharing with you now, but, you know, I've had patients come to me who, who've gotten their you know, their genetics done, their, their SNP testing done, and they're absolutely overwhelmed and preoccupied. And it's such an overwhelming stressor. Um, and it just, it can just create absolutely unwarranted anxiety. And in one case I cited in the book, she had a, you know, we did a workup on her and she actually had a serious, you know, precancerous condition that required a referral to hematology. And I couldn't get her to understand the importance of that because um, as far as she was concerned, MTHFR had, you know, had really was, was, was her fundamental imbalance and the only issue that she had. And it was pretty frustrating for me. You know, this was, you know, she had a precancerous condition that needed to be addressed and needed to be followed. And, you know, it was outside of my scope. And so I wanted to refer her and I just, I had a really hard time getting her um, 
you know, getting her to actually hear me because of her preoccupation with MTHFR. So I think, you know, I think some of us have done a, a disservice, you know, on how we've elevated the importance of these single nucleotide polymorphisms, and there just hasn't been the supportive evidence or the clinical, you know, experience to, to warrant it. But I also say, you know, in my second breath, I'm going to say that sometimes they are absolutely useful as well. So um, I just think we have to be nuanced and and you're and you're right. Our genes are not our destiny, as we've started this as we started this conversation with. So, um, I think it's really up to us providers to to bring that balance. Yeah, for sure. I like to look at you know if we have the genetics, that's great. But then it's looking at you know maybe an organic acid test or some of these other markers just to see what's happening. Yep, that's exactly right. I have people contact me a lot. And, you know, I do a lot of thyroid and also as it relates to fertility and people will say to me, oh, well, you know, I have this, this, and this, and we want to figure out what's going with thyroid, but I also have MTHFR. I need you to know that because that's really important. And I'm like, okay, thank you. Like it is, but I think it's just the media and, and it, we, again, not that it's not important, but we make it to be something that it may not be. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about being an undermethylator versus being an overmethylator. Yeah, so that's that's outside of my wheelhouse. I think that that concept was popularized, if I'm not mistaken, by um, by Walsh. And um, yes, so Walsh and his team, you know, determined that there could be this overmethylation and undermethylation phenomena happening in people. However, I think where some confusion happens is that hypermethylation. So lots of red lollipops on a gene will inhibit that gene. And conversely, hypomethylation, which is, you know, low, less red lollipops or no red lollipops on a gene will allow that gene to be turned on. So I think this, the Walsh idea, which is, you know, fairly permeated through functional medicine in this over and under methylation picture has gotten confused with uh, epigenetics and DNA methylation and hyper and hypomethylation as being the phenomena that regulates gene expression. And they're just two entirely different entities. We want some genes hypermethylated and inhibited. So for example, as we age, as I started this conversation about out with, um, our, our risk for the chronic diseases ensues. And we can see these patterns happening. We can see these negative changes happening with DNA methylation. The best example is cancer. So we have many, many, many different what we call tumor suppressor genes. These are genes whose job is to protect us from getting cancer, tumor suppressor genes. We want these genes on and functioning. We want to have, you know, cancer nipped in the bud and eliminated as soon as it starts. So we want high functioning tumor suppressor genes. As we age, we start to inhib we start to hypermethylate and turn those genes off. Tumor suppressor genes are inhibited and as they're inhibited, our risk for cancer increases exponentially. Again, aging is the biggest risk factor for cancer. And then there's this other category of genes. They're called oncogenes, and as the name implies, they're associated with cancer. When we're young, these cancer-promoting genes are hypermethylated and inhibited. We want those genes hypermethylated and inhibited. We don't want those genes on. But as we age, we literally start to turn these oncogenes 
on, removing the red lollipops, removing the methyl groups. So this, it's referred to in the literature, the scientific literature, as aberrant DNA methylation patterns or abnormal DNA methylation patterns. Some genes get turned on that we want off. Some genes are turned off that we actually want on. Um, and this is hyper and hypomethylation. These terms, they can be referred to as, but it's different than the whole wash idea of over and under methylation. Our, our diet and program is designed to balance methylation. Uh, it's designed to support methylation happening on the genes, you know, in the right amounts where it should. And what's pretty cool is that our study suggests that we actually did that. So we looked at 353 different methylation sites in the clock, in the DNA methylation clock that we used. And we could see that we didn't net increase methylation. So we didn't make more methylation happening on the epigenome, but we actually moved those red lollipops around. We changed where it was happening to a more youthful pattern, which I think is so, so cool. We want to give our bodies the information it needs and trust its wisdom to take the tools that we provide in the form of food and lifestyle inputs and trust that it will then sort of direct the traffic, direct where those red lollipops will go to the more favorable spots. And that's really what we tried to do. Good holistic inputs and then letting, you know, letting the body work its magic and direct where those things happened. And it looks like, you know, given our study outcomes, it looks like we were uh, successful. Definitely more research is needed, but it looks like we were successful. And each thing has its own science on it, and I cover it in my book. Exercise acts like, you know, an epinutrient extraordinaire. <laughs> Exercise turns on those all-important tumor suppressor genes. And it, it does it especially when we're older. Exercise is like it is is really a potent DNA methylation regulator. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and that's really good to know because I think most people don't think of it that way. Because again, when they think of DNA methylation, they just think of certain nutrients or hacking it in some way. They think of folate and B twelve and yep. yeah, totally. And yet, sleep is an all important epi. You could call it an epinutrient. It's an ep, you know, it's a DNA methylation regulator. Sleep is you know stress management you know, avoiding toxins, like all of these things that we know are a part of a good life, it turns out that they all have these really pretty intimate and potent regulatory roles on DNA methylation. It's, it's, it's cool. And I want to just circle back. I don't want to forget to say probably a lot of folks listening are taking B vitamins, are taking folate or, and B12. And we very specifically didn't want to use a multivitamin. We didn't want to prescribe B12 or folate in our study. We didn't want to study vitamins. We wanted to study the diet and lifestyle program. Because just pushing methylation forward, so providing folate in B12, is basically pushing the methylation cycle to make those red lollipops. That's what it's doing. Because there's more to the physiology, more to the to the game than just making lots of red lollipops and hoping for the best. Right. Because it's a matter of where they go, right? Exactly. That's exactly right. And that's this whole category of, of epinutrients that we sort of colloquially termed in the book um, methylation adaptogens. Um these are all of the beautiful polyphenols that, you know, I mentioned quercetin and luteolin and resveratrol and um, 
rosmarinic acid and turmeric or, or, or curcumin, the catechols in green tea, and on and on. There's many, 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 many of these all-important flavonoids. Uh, and they seem to regulate where those red lollipops are going. It's pretty cool. So you want to consume this information in concert. You know, plus with the lifestyle variables also helping to direct traffic like exercise and so forth. And that and that sort of complex um, soup of information, as it were, helps to guide. Um, so if I'm prescribing B vitamins to my patients, which I certainly will, I mean, we know a well-prescribed uh, folate or, or B12 can be a game changer for, for some of our patients. I now think about prescribing with these polyphenols that I'm mentioning. So I want, yes, you know, some folks are going to need a vitamin, but we, I also want to support them with the sort of the traffic direction of the polyphenols. And I may not go quite as high in my dosing as I used to, and I may not go for quite as long. Uh, there are exceptions to the rule, though. So I just I want to say there's always an exception to the rule. No, that makes a lot of sense. I think just the neatest thing about your study and everything that you saw is that it's not necessarily about making more lollipops. It's about where they go and how much these diet changes, which weren't even really that huge, right? I mean, for some people, they're bigger than others, but it was very doable in some of these diet and lifestyle changes, how much they played a role. It's, you know, we always say that the body has this ability to heal. And I know it sounds like a cliche because everyone just says, yeah, yeah. But really, I mean, that's exactly what you found, right? That with the right tools, it was not even that many tools and you don't have to biohack and do, you know, 25 different vitamins and minerals and enzymes and all of that. It was just these changes in food, they're just so powerful. And that's what allowed the body to heal in a way, right? By rebalancing these lollipops and creating what turns on and off the genes. So that's amazing. Yeah. So I, let's circle back to thyroid and to your patient that you, you know, that we talked about in the beginning. Going back to that term that I introduced a little while ago, aberrant DNA methylation or imbalanced DNA methylation, that is in fact happening not only in autoimmune thyroid disease, subclinical thyroid, any autoimmune condition has this imbalance of methylation happening, allowing inflammation to be turned on. You know, there's even some suggestion in the literature that, you know, the, the, the genes involved in regulating how we use iodine can be methylated or not, or, and, and inhibited um, or excessively activated. Our immune response, you know, the, the, the HLA proteins that perhaps you've talked about before, the ones that can determine tolerance or intolerance, can have these imbalanced methylation patterns on them. And in so, in so doing, they, they can drive forward autoimmunity. So even though it looks like there's this heritability component that may be coming from these imbalanced methylation patterns handed down, and these patterns are good habits over time has have the best potential for really changing these imbalanced or aberrant DNA methylation patterns. For all our patients in the clinic with autoimmunity, and of course the vast majority of those have, a, have, a, have thyroid autoimmunity, we use the fundamental principles of younger you as a starting point. And then we layer on the individual um, needs of the of the patient based on our our history and you know our la our further laboratory analysis, but the fundamental pillars of supporting healthy epigenetic expression are absolutely essential. We think 
you know, in the treatment of thyroid autoimmunity or really any autoimmune condition. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. Dr. Kyra, this is so informative and it's just amazing what you've seen in your research and the results that you got. And I think that it's going to be so helpful to so many people. Um, so for everyone listening, Younger You, you have to check it out. Um, Dr. Kara's all the protocols in there. And also, Dr. Kara, how can people connect with you? Where can they find you if they want to contact you? Easy. You can just find us at youngeryouprogram.com, youngeryouprogram.com. There's a free biological age test. I would encourage everybody to grab. You can also, if you want to test your your true biological age, if you want to actually you know, get the blood test done, you can access that and a nutrition consult. So if you'd like to do that, you're, you'll find that at Younger You Program. If you're interested in our clinic practice, then that's over at drkarafitzgerald.com and you can learn all about us over there. That's wonderful. We'll put all of that in the show notes as well. Dr. Kara, thank you so much for being here and for all the work that you do. And I look forward to staying connected with you. Yeah, very nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. As you just heard, DNA methylation is a huge factor that influences epigenetics, which in turn affects everything about our health and our immune system. For Laura, we really worked on her diet as a start because she was so heavily relying on vitamins, which of course is great. I love vitamins, but too much doesn't always work. And so she was trying to over supplement herself out of eating well. But we really, really have to start with diet. And that's where we started with Laura. We did a phasic approach where first we removed lectins from her diet to really make sure that we bring down the inflammation. And then after two weeks of that, we went to a grain-free diet. And then four weeks after that, we started to open things up a little bit and add in some other foods while still keeping it allergen-free. So gluten-free, dairy-free, corn-free, and soy-free. Now at this point, she started to notice a difference and she started to feel better because her diet was so much cleaner than before. And from this place, we started doing some testing so that we can see what else is going on. We ran an organic acid test and a micronutrient test so we can see what she was actually deficient in, what pathways were working and what pathways were not. Even though we already knew her genetics from the testing that she's run previously, we had to see how those genes are actually expressing and what was happening in her pathways. Based on all of the tests, we were able to see the nutrients she actually needed versus ones that she had enough of. And we were able to let go of a lot of her supplements. Thankfully, she was already feeling so much better from the diet changes. When we actually reduced supplements and added only the ones that she needed, she saw even more of an improvement. Her skin was less dry. Her thyroid antibodies reduced. In fact, they went down by half. They started out at 800. They were down to 400. In just a few months, she noticed better energy. She was less achy. And while, of course, we can't make wrinkles go away unless we use other interventions, she did notice because her skin was so much less dry and had so much glow, those wrinkles overall look better too. Laura was really excited. And of course, so was I. If Laura sounds like someone you know, please pass this episode on to them. And please make sure you subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode. And when it comes to your health issues, please, please, please do not give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. 
I'm Ina Tappeler. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time on Health Mystery Solved, Thyroid and Hashimoto's Revealed. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.